Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jingyi Li from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we have Drs. Katrina Moore, Hong Zhang, and Jin She with us to talk about their new edited volume, Beyond Filial Piety, Rethinking Aging and Caregiving in Contemporary East Asian Societies, published by Berghan last year. From perspectives of anthropology, sociology, public health, public policies, and etc., this book examines the social support for the elderly in East Asian countries who share the common value of filial piety, which is an essential component of Confucianism. Welcome. Welcome, professors. Thank you so much for joining us um, in New Books on Japanese Studies today. Thank you very much, Jingyi. Thank you for having us. So um, just uh, before we dive into the book, um, I'd like to kind of know what you do um, outside of writing this book. So what do you all research about? And I guess to trace back a bit more, how did you end up in what you are doing right now? Let's maybe start with Dr. Shea. Okay. Hi, my name is Jean Shea, and I'm a professor at the University of Vermont, and um, I also direct the Health and Society Program and the Global Health Concentration in Anthropology here. And my research is recently primarily on aging and caregiving in China, specifically spousal caregiving and also um, elderly volunteers supporting aging in place. Um, and I've been, you know, I w- studied Asian studies and Chinese culture and society and language as an undergrad and then studied um, anthropology as, as a graduate student. And um, I also have done some research in the U.S. and Canada related to um, aging as well. Interesting. And how about you, Dr. Zhang? So my name is Hong Zhang. I am uh, a professor of East Asian Studies and Anthropology at Kobe College. That's in Maine. Um, my research is on uh, elder care and aging in China, and also um, population policy, especially the one-child policy and its impact on daughters and also um, elder care in China. Um, I have been uh, working in this uh, field for the past uh, 20 years and uh, uh, more recently I have been collaborating with <laughs> Dr. She uh, through several panels and then also uh, this book project. It's really a pleasure to work with her. 
last year we we almost <laughs> planned to go to China for follow-up research, but the pandemic uh, disrupted our plan. That is uh, that that's awesome. Um, when I was reading the book, I, I thought that part uh, you put you picked really. Um, well, not not great angle. Not not that I know anything about caregiving, but um, it's something that my parents are worried about. So my parents are in China, and they always when we when we talk to each other, they they always blame me for leaving them there and uh, to 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 take care of themselves. So I thought that was quite interesting. Um, how about you, Doctor Moore? I understand that your research is primarily focused on Japanese studies? Indeed. Yes, I am an academic based in Sydney, Australia. And um, over the time I've worked in academia as an anthropologist, I have uh, lectured both at uh, Harvard University and I have lectured at the University of New South Wales. And my interest in in Japanese studies sprang from a strong interest in the health angle, and in particular, the mind-body connection that is sustained in arts, such as the chanting of the no theater. And that was a major part of my interest. Um, another interest I have, and a longstanding one, has to do with population aging. And that interest has um, led me to research and train at the university in Canberra called the Australia National University Demography Program. And that interest in both um, the health of people and also the larger population level changes in the society um, prompted me to look for opportunities such as this uh, collaboration. And so it's been a real um, eye-opener for me to expand my interest from Japan, which has been my primary area of investigation, to East Asia more broadly. And the book covers uh, not only um, Japan and China, also it looks at many countries such as Singapore and Taiwan, South Korea. Um, so that's been uh, a real broadening of my area of interest as a result of the collaboration. Yes. Incredible. I thought um, I thought your book came out right in time because um, now with the COVID pandemic situation, um, I guess a lot of people are starting to pay more and more, even more attention to the problem of aging. For example, in Japan, they just recently started um, vaccinating elderly above 65 years old. And apparently they have a really not large number of a uh, population to go through. So yeah, I definitely hope, uh, yeah, I definitely hope people get some inspiration from your book. So how did you all end up working on this project? Well, um, Dr. Zhang um, already mentioned that we had done a panel on aging and caregiving with the American Anthropological Association and the um, Association for Asian Studies, and um, ki kind of that was the spark for it. But then later, um, there was a um, AAS meeting um, in um, in Hong Kong, and um, Dr. Moore was at that meeting. And um, so sort of over time, our team came together 
And um, it took a lot of networking on our parts to get, um, you know, really representative, um, really good researchers in either anthropology or social work or social gerontology to represent um, most of what we would call East Asian societies. As um, Dr. Moore said, um, we have chapters on rural China and urban China and Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, um, Japan, and Korea. And um, it was it it just has been such an amazing experience to work together with Dr. Zhang and Dr. Moore because um, the like just what we were trying to cover was such a such a huge amount of demographic and cultural and historical and social change kind of scholarship and cultural scholarship that um, it was just been amazing to learn from them as well as the other authors in the book. Yeah, I thought it was quite amazing that um, despite having to work with so many different disciplines of three, four different cultures, um, you, you were able to find similarities between them and find um, uh, potentially common solutions or for future references. So I thought that was quite um, impressive. Um, now I want to um, get into a bit more detail about the book. So the center of your discussion is aging. But instead of talking about aging as in getting old in age, there are multiple things that you, you refer to by this term. Could you talk about what aging means in the context of this book? Um, sure. I mean, I, I may leave some out because I'm not looking at, at what we wrote. And as, as I as I've been rereading what we wrote, it's like, wow, we wrote that. <laughs> um, it's amazing how the mind just sort of moves on. But um, we, you know, part of it is looking at aging as in individuals uh, growing older over time. But part of it is uh, Dr. Moore and Dr. Zhang talked about dem demography and the aging of, of populations, populations having um, a larger proportion of people who are um, over the age of 60 or 65, depending on what benchmark you use. Um, and also thinking about um, aging in terms of um, societies um, aging over time. And I think I probably have left something out if someone else wants to jump in. Yeah, well, we were very interested in looking at um, how families and uh, communities respond. Um, so we're looking at these different levels at the same time, not only um, on the individual basis, but more on the social uh, communities and the social structures that have um, evolved to respond to this. And the book provides uh, quite fine-grained analyses of what is happening um, in certain sec sections of the society um, through ethnographic um, portrayals. And at the same time, we were very interested in providing a sense for the fact that aging is a life course issue so that at every juncture of the life course from birth all the way to after death, meaning even after a person dies, there are certain experiences that 
are um, needing attention by um, other members of the community, whether it is to care for aging persons, um, remains, etc. Um, so we try to look at the life course perspective as a very um, structured and um, uh, set of junctures, really. Yes. Also, we uh, like to uh, look at how um, cultural tradition um, um, impact uh, aging uh, and the aging experiences, and also the um, state policy. So we kind of, uh, you know, East Asian tradition has this long <laughs> Confucius uh, tradition, even though um, you know, China, Japan, Korea, or um, other settings, they have their own um, maybe cultural history or interpretation, but this general uh, Confucius idea is there, but then how uh, it's aging, it's evolved or you reinterpret it in, uh, as the countries modernize. Um, so that's another aspect we look at, and, and of course, um, the uh, state policy, how that also impact aging, especially we have China's uh, one-child policy that really accelerated uh, population aging in China. And then for China, uh, we even have a term, right? You uh, age before you get rich. So <laughs> so that also means um, how both the state, family, and individual need to cope with the situation, come together. Now that you mention um, Confucian values, uh, so caring for the elderly and filial piety are taught from kindergarten to East Asian kids, but your book argues that this traditional Confucian value does not quite fit the current society of East Asia anymore, especially not with the social changes brought by modernization. So I want to unpack this a little bit more. Perhaps we can begin with population because it's one of the uh, center focuses of your book. So you give a lot of attention to the recent changes of, of population and the problems that rise from such changes. Could you speak more about this in terms of, um, say, what's happening in China? Yes, I, I think the first thing to mention is that Filial piety, when you dig into it, it's it's a much more multi-layered concept than when you initially just think about, oh, respect and care for elders. Um, it, if you dig into it, it, it contains many different dimensions. So there's like obedience to elders, and that really doesn't fit very well today. But there's respect for elders. That fits a little better, but it becomes difficult when younger generations have so much more education and society is changing so rapidly. And then there's um, like uh, instrumental care, like hands-on care for, for elders. And that becomes much harder when we're talking about very mobile societies and uh, dual career um, earning families uh, among the uh, ch children's generation. Um, and then we have economic support for elders and we have co-residence with elders and the co-residence with elders um, has for many decades now be becoming less and less popular. 
Um, and then interestingly for the financial support, depending on what part of East Asia you're, you're talking about, and even like what part of China you're talking about, um, because of the growth of social welfare systems, um, support by adult children of the elders has become less necessary. Interesting. Do you I'll have... let others jump in though, because there's so much more. Right. Dr. Zhang? I was thinking that, that there was the other way around. The elder uh, parents are helping their sometimes uh, struggling uh, middle-aged uh, children or with childcare, definitely. Um, so uh, it's more reciprocal, um, I think, uh, when we look at the intergenerational relations. Uh, when um, Dr. She um, talk about the uh, what is still relevant or what is um, probably not fitting to the uh, contemporary society. And the other thing we can also say that uh, is this idea of uh, um, continue the family line. So we, we uh, even though we uh, don't think that, you know, in the traditional sense, that's also made part of filial piety, you have to uh, continue the family line. Um, but uh, now uh, it's more about your personal uh, family or nuclear family or, uh, you know, some children may decide not to have <laughs> children to the dislike of their parents, <laughs> maybe. But uh, yeah, so that can be another kind of uh, a tension point between you know parents and children, but definitely the society have changed. Um, but I think this general idea of um, elder care or providing parental support is, is still very dear to many. Um, I, I, I know the Chinese <laughs> the children, uh, adult children. I, I I'm not sure. It's that kind of sense still fell in Japan. Uh, maybe Dr. Moore can speak more about that. Yeah, um, I will just um, augment some of the points raised. I think one of the things that's happening, uh, there are two themes that emerge. One is that there are now different options available to um, provide uh, care, care, carers with some external support. So. What we see here is that families are making a lot of choices about which services they would use to supplement family care in order to fulfill their Confucian values. And Confucian values remain important, uh, for instance, that show of respect or that show of concern. Those things remain important. And so how those are um, interpreted and um, lived in this current day can be seen in perhaps the choices that mobile families make about what services that they can um, organize to enable that to happen. And in the, in the process, there is also a great deal of tension or dilemma for families because they need to negotiate um, competing priorities. And we see that um, sort of tension in, in some of the case studies. 
Um, there was a point raised about co-residence, which I think is fascinating because in East Asia in general, relative to, let's say, parts of North Northern Europe, the level of co-residence is much, much higher among families in um, their households, far higher to this day. And so there is um, a proportionally higher co-residence. And yet our book shows quite a range of um, choices about this. Some of them, such as the chapter by Tang and Shay, that shows how older persons are choosing to live separately from their children. And that is seen as a kind of a novel way to deal with the new values of being independent for elders. So we see um, independent residents rather than co-residents. On the other hand, in um, Zhang's chapter, we see grandparents co-residing with their adult children to care for their younger um, offspring. And that is an instance where people are co-residing, showing the kind of care that Dr. Zhang just mentioned a moment ago, uh, where older persons are doing a lot more to care for their younger members as um, as a sort of a reciprocal way of being rather than simply receiving care as they get older. So we see quite a few uh, different cases um, as the societies are all changing in this current day. So just kind of a follow-up question for Dr. Moore. Um, what are some of these, um, I guess, manifestation of such changes in Japan, for example? Well, the biggest thing that probably has happened in the intervening years since uh, the late uh, 1990s, when a lot of initial research was done on this, uh, is that the long-term care insurance uh, policy was put in place. And this uh, was put forth as a solution to the fact that a lot of care was being done in-house by family members. So the long-term care insurance system ensures that all uh, members of the society over the age of 65 who qualify can access um, supplemental care that is um, provided both by private companies and also by government um, um, managed industries. And these uh, types of care allow people to um, supplement or at least uh, uh, combine with what the people might do in the family. And I think the Japanese case shows also that there is uh, the ethnography uh, chapters we see in the book show how care has to extend not just um, into the end of life, but also beyond life. And so, for instance, Long and Campbell's chapter looks at how care happens for people um, even after um, their members of family have passed on. And that level of um, attention to post-death care is an interesting phenomenon that we see in their Japanese ethnographic case. Indeed. And how do people react to such um, public policies? Were they more in favor of it or are there any aspects that they are against? Well, it's very interesting you raise that in terms of what might be the social reactions to this um, level of um, socialized care given by government and uh, market uh, sources in, in that some 
elements of the conservative sections of uh, Japanese society, for instance, the society um, that, that values um, a more, let's say, conservative family-based uh, gender notion would want women and family members to continue to care for their elders in-house by themselves and to uphold this level of uh, gender uh, care by uh, women in the family is seen as a very uh, dignified thing. So there are elements within society that oppose this uh, shift toward um, public sources of care. Having said that, I think for the majority of the society, the availability of this long-term care insurance system has uh, been a boon. It has been seen as uh, good, um, but perhaps uh, not enough. As the society becomes older, there are new demands for new types of uh, care arrangements to um, meet the needs of the, the 21st century. Hmm. Interesting. What about in China? What kinds of um, public policies um, is China using to, I guess, to improve this problem of aging and lack of elderly care? And what are the um, reactions from its people? Well, of course, there's the um, 2013 um, um, uh, policy on uh, the treatment of the elderly. And... Um, you know, one reaction, one response to that has been that um, it's it's basically an ideal statement, but there hasn't been much way to actually enforce the idea that um, adult children are required to take care of of their elderly parents. And there's also a certain amount of loss of face for parents who were to take their children to court to try to get them to um, support them, although that happens sometimes. Um, Dr. Zhang. Yeah, China, it's a situation, it's, we can say maybe very decentralized. So we don't have a uniform national policy uh, on um, pension or uh, we don't even have a long-term care insurance uh, system as Japan and uh, Korea has. I think Japan is in 2000 and Korea had it uh, in uh, uh, 2008. But China, we know, first of all, there's a huge divide between urban and rural. And then in urban China, you generally have a pension system. So the elderly, you depend on pension for their uh, financial support. And then they also have a, a kind of a debau for those who don't have a pension. Um, but even within urban China, you, you have different cities may have a different policy uh, uh, and then depend on their resources. So it we, we really see that as a very decentralized situation. And then... Um, I think Shanghai or maybe some other cities are in a piecemeal. Um, they're trying to put long-term care uh, insurance in place. But uh, I, I don't 
think they have a really uh, a policy yet. Um, and then the even though we also have um, elder homes, they are totally out of pocket. So the expenses can be very high. And then you also have population that you know have money. So um, many of those newly built um, elder homes are really, I find it, you know, target those high-end population and very fancy, um, those high-end elder homes. And then, um, so that really showed this stratification of aging and, and the elder care. And then it's, I think, mostly driven by the market. Um, that's, I think, the challenge that China is still facing. You know, it's a country that it's really GDP per capita is still pretty low, but your population aging is accelerated. Many people are <laughs> entering in, in the old age and you don't have enough uh, resources to really cover this uh, large population. And then at the same time, you do have people at the high income bracket, and then they can enjoy or they can um, have access to those, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, better. that's quite a that's quite a big problem. But you, you just mentioned Korea. Um, so does Korea have a better policy or policies? Um, well, um, as Dr. Zhang just mentioned Korea, Korea does have a long-term care insurance policy, and um, it has looked to Japan a lot for, um, for as a model. Um, one thing that is different in Korea, at least as of the writing of the book, and I'll defer to Dr. Morris to whether any, anything has changed in Japan since then, but as of the writing of the book, Korea did allow... Um, family caregivers to be paid um, for caregiving um, because of concern, especially about low-income family caregivers, um, you know, having to take care of their relatives, but, you know, not having enough to really live on. Um, and so that is also something that Hong Kong was starting to pilot experimenting with. Um, but um, I, I, how, what is happening in terms of that at this point um, in Japan, Dr. Moore? Is it still something that's resisted, the idea of paying family to take care? Indeed. I think the family-based uh, care was uh, uh, that would be paid as it is in some other countries, as you just mentioned, uh, in other parts of East Asia or in Germany, for instance, that idea of paying for uh, labor that happens uh, inside the household by other family members was um, ultimately rejected as a measure, as a component of the long-term care insurance system. So to this day, the payment must be uh, made only to providers of care and those who are in, in the family are not remunerated for um, the care that they might provide um, in the in in house. Um, so, in examining, it, I, I just have one thing to add about 
that policy in Korea because you had kind of asked a question about, you know, maybe what is better in Korea. And I think the jury's out as to whether that's better or worse, because as um, authors Lee and Chi write um, in their Korea chapter, it it is a positive in that um, low income folks who have to take care of their elderly can have sort of a, a better subsistence, a better life with these um, with with these stipends. However, there have been problems with uh, you know a minority of family members slacking off and really neglecting their elders and still collecting the money and problems of um, you know family members who just really don't have the proper skills or, or care to take good care of their elders. So there, are, it's a mixed picture. The opposition to um, providing paid care by family members in Japan had a slightly different history, and it's quite interesting uh, in that there were some uh, feminist groups in Japan who uh, were quite vocal in saying that doing a payment to family members would reinforce the expectation that it is a family uh, who is meant to provide care and that it is uh, female family members who is who are expected to provide care. So the feeling was that by removing that um, expectation altogether, it would be a more progressive step for the society to um, shift it out of that domain. Yeah, that would probably be ideal. Um, so... Do you, in examining the problems with elder care in these three countries, um, what do you see as some of the similarities in the causes of these problems and the solution of the problems? I know that the book uh, or the articles cover a lot of aspects for the causes, for the solutions, but if you have to choose one that you think is most pressing, what would that be? I think first, may I be a professor for a moment and, and, and question the premise. So one part of our book is, um, is, is questioning the idea of aging as a problem. Um, you know, aging is a problem for those who are lucky enough to get there, right? There. So it's, it's, both, it's both a blessing and also a challenge for individuals and also societies. And um, one aspect of filial piety that Dr. Zhang referred to, but I think we may not have underscored enough, is that um, for older adults, for the elderly, part of filial piety is making sure to, um, to nurture the descendants enough, their children and their grandchildren, to carry on the family line for the ancestors. And so um, as uh, Dr. Um, Yunxiang Yen, or Yen Yunxiang, as we, as we say in China, um, has argued, there's, there's this tension in filial piety between um, wanting to take care of those older than you and wanting to take care of those younger than you, because filial piety includes carrying on the, the generations and trying to have them be successful for the descendants to be successful. Um, 
And so I think that, you know, our book is is fundamentally about not just caregiving for the elderly, but caregiving by the elderly and caregiving by the elderly for themselves, for their children, even as adults, for the grandchildren, for each other, for their spouses. Um, and uh, and and so. Um, you know, it's uh, I, I'm trying to remember the, what the original question was since I questioned the question. Um, but uh, maybe I'll just stop there and let someone else pick up. Well, I think indeed the um, solution that uh, Professor Shea just mentioned is one uh, so uh, one kind of remedy or social societal response to what was perceived as um, by some as a problem or by others as a big dilemma. And that is um, to negotiate the fact that their uh, care is required by both the ones above and the ones below. And so the, the older persons themselves decide to, to take matters into their own hands and to embrace an ethic of perhaps uh, mutual uh, uh, assistance within couples or um, being independent from family. Those are new values. And then these are manifested in the cases we see, for instance, in um, Professor Shea's chapter where um, um, spouses do a lot more care for each other than they may have done uh, in previous uh, eras, for instance. And so there's been a sort of a negotiation of those tensions. And what's perhaps remarkable and quite um, important to uh, sort of note is that shift from when um, Dr. Eichels, Charlotte Eichels, wrote her uh, monograph with her colleagues, um, and the book is a partner book to our book. Um, in that book, there was uh, much less of an emphasis on the care uh, done by elders for elders and care done uh, by elders for younger generations. So we see people, um, older as persons, sort of stepping up to the plate in um, expressing aspects of uh, caregiving to each other um, and to those uh, around them. And interestingly, um, in some of our chapters, like the one by um, um, Min Zhang and the one by um, Dorota uh, Schwarzka, is some elders sometimes seeing caregiving for their children or grandchildren being the problem to needing needing to escape, you know, being taken advantage of, basically. Um, so what we try to do is, you know, you know, there's a big body of scholarship on support for the aged, but there's other another big body of scholarship on productive aging. And so what we've tried to do is bring them together because oftentimes they're treated separately. And it's really interesting when you bring them together and think about the the pluses and minuses of caregiving both for and by the elderly. Interesting. It's it's kind of ironic to see how, how the rich meanings of filial piety has grown into an aged problem now. What, so, Dr. Zhang, what do you think is the most pressing um, um, cause that's leading to all these problems? I think uh, probably is, uh, 
lot of uh, um, it's a combination of a lot of factors. Um, in China, I think I'm sorry. I, I have this uh, thing. I don't know if it's making noise. It's really interrupting you guys. <laughs> uh, if so, I'm sorry about that. Uh, in China, we have um, this one-child policy. That really, you have a whole generation. All of a sudden, uh, you know, uh, now those generation parents are entering old age, and then you have also this. They only have one child, and then and then there was this concern of how to uh, provide care uh, for their aging parents, and then at the same time, the parents like. Uh, Dr. Moore and Dr. Shea also talk about uh, there was this new value of uh, of uh, the parents feels it's their duty to see their children to be successful for their career. So they don't want the taking care of them to be a burden to their children. So you have this both on the one hand you have children have this anxiety of how to <laughs> provide care or worry about that. And, and on the other hand, the parents know they only have one child and then their child also has to succeed in this very competitive economic environment. And then so how not to be a burden to their children. But then at the same time, they also want that care or want their children or their only child to care. So there was this um, very um, emotions, and then uh, as in addition to the reality of you know uh, of care, that's still looming. I think for some it's already. Uh, I, I think a little bit older generation of those one-child parents, they are entering their seventies now. So they are really begin facing this. Um, I think we do see. Uh, this uh, development of this new value uh, to be more independent and um, to keep themselves, for the parents to keep themselves uh, busy, um, productive, fit, and so that they don't have to depend on, you know, or to prolong that process as long as possible. On the other hand, you also begin to see the, I think this uh, development, I, I call it the peer aging. That is the parents or this generation, they're developing this horizontal friendship or social networking with the peers of their age, not the vertically, you know, depending on their children. So because this whole generation, they have that similar experience going through cultural evolution, sent down to the countryside, coming back. Um, so they, this kind of friendship, we actually see more and more. And then some people even say that, that they were going to age together instead of <laughs> depending on their children. So this kind of self-help and, uh, uh, and then also help each other. Uh, so I called it a peer aging, I don't know if it makes sense, but that really uh, it seemed to be a trend among the uh, people who are still marching towards that eventual, uh, you know, 70s and 80s, how long that can last. But I think, uh, so you see those 
people are very active. Um, they go to Laonian Dashue, the universities for seniors. And sometimes they go there to really expand their friendship, like to know more people of similar interest, and then also to expand their hobbies or pick up new skill. So that as soon as they keep themselves busy and not to worry too much, then they can maybe stay healthy that way. So I can you can see those are the strategies. Um, uh, people know this is the reality. So you say, what causes the problem? So they don't have anybody to turn to, right? So because everybody is facing the same problem. So China is all of a sudden, this generation of parents enter, enter, enter into old age. And then I think they are developing very good strategies uh, of dealing with this. At the same time, they want to also keep good relationship with their children. I think that the parents know that if they are not burdening them too much, then that's a good relationship too. Uh, so their children is not feeling burnout. Um, I, I, I think to some extent, this reality forces people to, to actually become more like a, to, to, um, towards more autonomy, like a moving decision for themselves. And then also, uh, I don't know, if that's a word, like a, a be responsible for their own aging. Uh, so that sense, that's very different from the traditional value. But at the same time, I think it's actually influenced by the traditional value because they still want to help their children. So by, by keeping themselves <laughs> healthy and fit and not burden their children, that's a kind of a reciprocal relationship. And then also, you know, they want their children not to be dragged down <laughs> in Chinese, we say the word, right? So um, I, I, I think this is a combination of factor, right? The demography and then also the market economy and this um, idea of, uh, of uh, self-control and responsibility for themselves. So, they, so we do see that kind of uh, directions. Uh, and then, then, of course, this just show Another big divide in the countryside, the rural parents, they do not have that luxury. And very often the rural parents, elderly, they have to take grand, take care of grandchildren. And then very often they are left behind taking care of their own aging. And then they don't have any patience uh, to support themselves. So, and of course, no senior universities for them to go. So I, I feel like uh, in the city, it, it's really one thing and then countryside, it's quite uh, different. And, um, and if we take the theme of, you know, wanting warm feelings and good relationship and family harmony, all of which are part of traditional values, but they've become emphasized much more relative to other traditional values. And we see this in um, Professor Schwartzka's chapter in Korea um, with elders who, um, who were forced into labor on Sakhalin Island um, that was, ocu was occupied by Japan during World War II. And um, then, um, in recent decades, 
uh, South Korea decided to welcome some of those um, forced laborers to come back, but not their children. And so you would think like, you know, why would they want to go back to a country they hadn't been in been for decades and decades and leave their children behind? But they wanted to do it to maintain family harmony by putting some space between and taking advantage of the um, of the the housing benefit and the living benefit that South Korea was going to provide to them if these elders went back to South Korea and that I also wanted to pick up on the independence and self-reliance theme because um, we not only see that for China, but we also see that um, for Japan. And Dr. Moore talks about that um, very eloquently in her chapter. And the South Korea too, the Chin East uh, article, the, the long-term care insurance, uh, the one very positive uh, impact is that it helps supporting the independence of the, the elderly too. So, and then that seemed to be also a new value. There are so many um, fascinating aspects that you just mentioned that I wish we had time to get more into. And the book really, it's so rich in its materials and how in the disciplines that it covers. I wish we could um, have all the authors here to talk about it, but unfortunately we're running out of time. So I'll just ask one last question. Um, so I recently watched this movie called I Care A Lot. Um, you may have heard of it. It's, it, I guess it's based on a real story and it talks about um, the problem with elder care in the US. So I guess, um, this um, trouble with elder care isn't a standalone issue in East Asia. So how do you think your book, um, how do you think all these chapters fit into the bigger picture of aging generally in the world? Oh my goodness. I mean, it, it, if we're, whether, you know, we're talking about 2050 or, or beyond that, um, so many in the countries in the world are are aging, have aging populations, populations that will be, you know, unprecedented levels of of elderly folks, um, you know, getting to, you know, from now you have, you know, Japan is relatively high with, um, you know, uh, the percentage of elders in the 20s, but we're going to be in, you know, 30% elderly, 40% elderly in, in some countries, it, it, within our lifetimes, and so the um, the challenges and the creative solutions, whether at the policy level or at the individual or the family level, I, I think that um, the both the problems and the strategies that we see here, in terms of the way people make meaning of these things, the way people turn what is a burden also into something that helps them with their their self-cultivation and you know their journey as a person um i think i think um you know i i find a lot of wisdom in what i learned from these chapters and i do think that it like you pointed out um it does go beyond asia really east asia 
Well, I think the terminology that scholars in different parts of the world use to uh, refer to this um, value of how to care for others, both vulnerable and loved ones, um, that those terms slightly differ. Um, so, for instance, in the U.S., there is a lot more influence of, um, let's say, the idea of intergenerational contract. What does it mean? Or what is intergenerational solidarity in an era where um, there are new and competing demands for women and men who are in the workforce and cannot provide for their loved ones in the way they did? Um, and people such as Ronald and Jacqueline Angel have written about this in the U.S. case to deal with the um, issues in the U.S. And I, I think um, we not we need not always be bound by the terms that are local, just so that we keep our purview open to how different scholars in different geographic contexts have come up with terms to encapsulate this um, need to care for the vulnerable and need to care for loved ones. And um, I, I do think that the future is um, very much um, open to how the societies deal with the blessing of longevity, because all the societies are due to better medical care, um, seeing a greater longevity um, as a trend. And so what that longevity portends for um, each country is obviously going to be negotiated um, on a policy level and, and as, as Professor Shea said, on a meaning level. Like, what does it mean and how do we reckon with it? Yeah. One, one more thing I would add uh, is that uh, the, our book, it's uh, a series, right? It's called The Life Course, Culture and Aging. Global transformation. So, uh, it's one of those book series. So you can see this aging is a global trend, and they, each country or each region they they might also develop um, um, their uh, way of coping. And I think our book it's also contributing to this uh, uh, literature to uh, get people prepared <laughs> uh, to uh, the challenges challenges ahead that also yeah. oh i i just realized that uh, that maybe this is a good point for a plug which is that um our book has hardcover it has ebook and this um and within the next half year or so there's also going to be a paperback coming out and dr Zhang has been um our um, inaugural member of our group to use the um, book in teaching, and she's finding it's resonating quite well with uh, the undergrad she's teaching. That's awesome. I I, I really hope your book, um, when the paperback comes out too, of course, that it can um, encourage more families to think about this problem that many of us will face in the future. So th thank you so much. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thank you. For our listeners to learn more about filial piety and aging in modern Asia, make sure to check out this book, Beyond Filial Piety, Rethinking Aging and Caregiving in Contemporary East Asian Societies. This is Jin Yi Li from New Books in Japanese Studies. I will see you in our next episode.